All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day, for the amazing blessings of the day. So good to have Vista Ridge with us today. And, and Lord, now as we turn our minds to your word, speak to us as we start something today that will take us up to Thanksgiving. Another focus. Help us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I don't know how many of you know this or not, but for a brief period of time, I worked for Adventist World Radio. And I worked for Adventist World Radio at the same time that Greg Hodgson was working for Adventist World Radio. Now, that, that's, not a, that's not a huge stretch because he worked there for a really long time. And I only worked there for a very short time. But, but we happened to overlap in that period uh, when we worked together. So it was a real treat for me when I was uh, coming here and realizing that Greg and Sandy are members here and a part of this community. That was, uh, that was a neat reunion to experience. But while I was working for Adventist World Radio, uh, we had occasion to fly to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Now the reason for this was we were on our way to Abu Dhabi, which is the other big city in the UAE. We were on our way to Abu Dhabi because the British uh, shortwave radio technical coordinating people, I don't even know what all to call it, but they went by the name of Merlin, kind of a clever name, I thought. But anyway, uh, was, uh, was now doing an operating... Uh, contract with this massive shortwave broadcasting facility that the United Arab Emirates had built because when you have money you can build anything you want but what they found out after they built this thing that enabled them to communicate with all of the world they discovered you know we really don't have that much to say so they started renting out time and we at Adventist World Radio, because we'd worked with Merlin, were contacted by Merlin, and Merlin said, hey, you have any interest in broadcasting the gospel from a Muslim country? And the answer was yes. Now, they had some rules. You couldn't broadcast in Arabic, but that particular facility was not needed to broadcast in Arabic. That was done from other places. It was needed to broadcast into places like Iran and Afghanistan and places like that. And they had no problem because that wasn't Arabic. So we flew to Dubai and we rented a car and we were driving from Dubai across the desert and it is absolutely desert. From Dubai to Abu Dhabi. And I remember I was struck as we were traveling along how much it reminded me of America. That was a little bizarre, right? It was not what I expected at all. But here's the deal. There was nothing there until oil became a thing. And it was American oil companies that really worked particularly with that region to bring it up to speed. So a lot of what they had done in terms of the look of the buildings, the look of the roads, we drove on the right-hand side. Uh, we were listening to a radio station in English and the accents of the people were American accents, and the songs that were playing were American songs. And I just remember thinking as I was driving along, if I wasn't aware of the fact and didn't occasionally see a local person in an outfit that I wouldn't wear, I would think I was in America. 
And as a result of that, it was very easy for me to be comfortable and to feel as though they wanted me there. We make these subconscious judgments in any environment that we walk into. We go into an environment and very quickly we make a determination. Do they want me here? Whether we do it on purpose or not, it takes place at a deep level. And it's not even necessarily a negative thing. I think it comes from, a, from a, another time where, where the ability to quickly discern whether or not you're safe was very important to you staying alive. We arrived at the hotel in Abu Dhabi later in the afternoon, about 4.40. We checked in and we headed upstairs to our rooms and we were supposed to meet up at 6 o'clock with some of the representatives for dinner. We went up to our rooms, it was about 4.40, well now it's getting close to 5 and uh, getting ready to take a shower and one of the guys that was staying with me in the room turned the TV on and uh, was going to catch up on a little news and, and we looked on the TV and there was a crazy little story going on here about uh, some sort of an accident that had apparently taken place in New York City. And we were intrigued by this, what's, what's going on? And there was camera footage and nobody was really clear on what was going on but there appeared to be smoke coming from one of the World Trade Center towers. And so we watched for a little while as they were speculating and trying to figure out and, and the, the discussion was it seems that perhaps an airplane had hit one of these towers and, and nobody was completely sure exactly what was going on. And as we stood there watching, we watched as a second aircraft flew into the other tower. It was in that moment that we realized there was a lot more going on than an accident. It would not be too long after this that we would hear reports that another plane had crashed into the Pentagon. At this time, Alicia's and the rest of the family, we were living in Columbia, Maryland, roughly 30, 35 miles from the Pentagon. Here I am in Abu Dhabi, 7,000 miles away, watching what's going on and knowing for sure that my wife, who has three little boys, Ariel had not come along yet, three little boys has no idea what's going on because she doesn't have time to turn the TV on or pay attention to the news. She's just trying to get them fed because it's eight in the morning. So I called her from 7,000 miles away to tell her what was happening 30 miles from her. It was in that moment that I realized the uselessness of technology. You see, technology can tell me what's going on on the other side of the world, but I can't do a thing about it. I can sit there and watch it live, but I can't do a thing about it. We watched in the room as one tower fell, and then the other tower fell. And we didn't make our dinner plans that night. And our next day appointment where we toured the facility was very subdued and very different than we thought it would be. I had a couple 
realizations in that moment. You see, earlier that summer in July, we'd been visited by some friends of ours who uh, we met at seminary who were from Africa, and they had come to stay with us in Washington, D.C., and we took them to D.C. sites, and then one day I said, let's go to New York, and I loaded them in the car. This was July of 2001, and we drove to New York, and we went and we saw the Statue of Liberty, and we went to Wall Street, and we did the New York stuff, and, and we ended it up by going to the Twin Towers. And we rode the elevator to the top, to the observation area, and it was the strangest thing. I'd never seen it before. I don't know why that was the reality that day, but we were in the tower with the antenna. And for some reason, from the observation area, there was a stairway, and there was a door propped open. And so we went up that stairway, and what it was was the stairway to the roof. And we literally stood on the roof of that building, looking out across the city, the antenna right behind us. I remember as I was standing there, I was struck because there was an airplane flying up the Hudson River to an airport up the river, and I thought, wow, he's lower than us. July. I happened to be in New York again in August, just one month before. And the first time I ever saw the Twin Towers was, I think, in the 70s. My parents took me to New York, and I remember I was struck when I stood there and I looked at, at how the the structure came together and went up, and I like to stand right at the edge of it and look straight up. And, and I did that again in August 2001. And then 7,000 miles away, I watched the towers fall. And in that moment, a second realization came to me. I'd been so comfortable. It felt like America. Everything felt good. And then all of a sudden, the question came to me, Am I wanted here? Do I want to be in the middle of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula on 9-11? I was uncomfortable after that when I walked along the street. And I think everybody was a little uncomfortable, not exactly sure how to relate to me. Now, I wasn't in any danger. Um, the, the United Arab Emirates is very fond of the fact that it has made a lot of money by selling petroleum products to the West, and there was not hostility there. And I got over the reality that I might, in fact, be in some sort of danger, but it changed my perspective. Now, the story has an interesting conclusion, and I'll just tell it really quick, because Greg is, kind of plays into this story. We got out of there, and we flew back to Frankfurt, Germany, and we were waiting with the rest of our group. And all of our group had scheduled to fly home on Thursday. But Greg and I were the only ones that had scheduled to fly home on Friday because we were going to spend an extra day uh, in the United Arab Emirates doing some things. We didn't end up doing that. But all the Thursday flights were canceled. You remember, nobody flew anywhere. And he and I were scheduled on Friday, out of Frankfurt, on United flights, mine to Washington Dulles and him to Denver. And we went to the airport early in the morning, even though our flights weren't till later in the day, and we got checked, I think, a million times. But it turns out that my flight and his flight were the first United flights to fly again after 9-11, and we actually got home according to schedule, even though the rest of our group was delayed through the weekend to get home. 
Have you ever been somewhere and wondered if you're wanted? We start today with a series that's going to take us up to Thanksgiving that I'm calling the five questions. Five questions that people ask in any environment where they go. Each of us asks it, and it's particularly relevant to new people that come into an environment. Five questions. We'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead. And in fact, I'll also tell you what all five of the questions are next, next Sabbath. But today, we're going to start with the first of the questions. And that question is, do you want me here? It's a question that every one of us is continually asking. And we're continually getting answers to that question from our environment in every setting that we go into. It's a subconscious question. And we ask it anytime we enter a new environment or a changed environment. Now, as we begin to reflect on this question, I want us to take a look at a couple Bible stories here. And, and we're not going to plumb the depths of these stories, but just to take a look in the context of this question at a couple stories. And the first one is found in the book of Ruth. Now, this book of Ruth is a fascinating book. It takes place in the time of the judges. And it's a, it's a very personal story. And in some ways, you probably could have named this book Naomi because it really kind of centers around her, even though in the end, Ruth is the, the hero character that emerges. But the story begins with a man named Elimelech, Elimelech, yeah, uh, who was married to a woman named Naomi, and because a famine came into the land of Judah, they decided that they, with their two sons, would move to the land of Moab until the famine was over. And everything seems okay in the land of Moab. The two sons marry women from the land of Moab, but then tragedy comes. Elimelech dies. And then so do both of the sons of Naomi. And now the only one left is Naomi with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And the day comes where Naomi hears that the famine has ceased in Judah and she decides, I might as well go home. And she starts out and the daughters-in-law go with her and she says to them, go back. Go back to your people. I have nothing for you. And even if I had a husband and were to give birth to sons today, would you wait for them to grow? I have nothing for you. And they cry together, and, and one of the daughters-in-law leaves, but Ruth, it says, clung to Naomi and would not let her go. And Naomi says, what are you doing? Go back. And Ruth says, no. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. So Naomi brings her back. They come back together. And it's a, it's a powerful reality. But here's the thing. Now they have to survive. I wonder what went through Naomi's mind as Ruth is preparing to come with her back to the land of Judah. She's already going to be disgraced because she doesn't have a husband anymore. Her sons are gone. 
And she's bringing back a Moabite woman who said, I want to be with your people. I, I want to worship your God. I wonder if it went through Naomi's mind, yeah, hmm, I wonder how you're going to be received. Because see, you're not one of the Israelites. You're a Moabite, and you're a Moabite woman, and, and there's a lot of negative history here. And I don't know what's going to happen. Have you ever had a friend who you knew was growing in their interest in God and you wanted to invite them to church with you, but you just weren't sure if they'd be safe there? How scary is that thought? Ah, uh, yeah, Bill, he's really starting to warm up to the idea of God, but do I, do I really want to turn him loose in the church? Wow. You see, even we know when we're communicating, I don't want you here. But ironically, it doesn't change our behavior very often, does it? The funny thing is, everybody that's a part of church knows that we're supposed to want new people. We all know that. It's one thing to know the answer. But isn't it crazy how... That knowledge doesn't necessarily change our attitudes or behaviors. Naomi leaves. The name Naomi means pleasant. When she comes back, she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Lord has made my life bitter. Now they have to survive. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? I want to give you four quick lessons that I see in this story here about how to make someone feel wanted. And the first one is right here. Boaz noticed her. That's the first point. Now, there may have been any number of reasons why that might have happened. But regardless, the very first point in making someone feel wanted is to notice them. To intentionally go into the environment where you're familiar and take note of anyone or anything that is new. the first point. Verse 6. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whoever, 
whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Second point. Point number one, notice. Point number two, communicate. Communicate. Boaz didn't have to say anything to Ruth, but he went up to her, and he communicated with her. Now, it doesn't have to be a long conversation. It doesn't have to be an intrusive conversation, but a verbal indication that you are glad they've come to glean in your field. Just a little interaction. Verse 11. Ruth says, why have I found favor in your eyes? In verse 10. But then verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you. So he's saying, I understand it's hard to come into this environment, and I appreciate and respect what you've done. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing as one of your servants. Wouldn't that be wonderful if everyone who came into this space at the end of it would say, wow, they put me at ease even though I don't have standing there as a member. Wouldn't that be nice? Wow, it was, it was just really nice being there. Those people were so nice. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Hey, hey, let her gather among the sheaves, and don't reprimand her. Even, even pull out some stalks for her from the bundle and, and leave them for her to pick up. And do not rebuke her. Be nice. That's what he's saying to them. Be nice. Make it easy. There's really two points he's bringing out here. The third point is show kindness. Notice, communicate, show kindness. Hey, come on over here. There's room on our, on our blanket. You, you take some of this bread, dip it in this. This is the best. This is the best vinegar from last year. I don't know, whatever vinegar is. Dip some bread in that. And here's a little grain. Here, have some of that. Yeah, oh, we got plenty. Nothing like a meal to break down walls. Then the fourth, so we've got notice, communicate, show kindness. The fourth is make provision for, even if they don't know. Ruth didn't know that he went to the others and said, hey, be really nice to her, give her a little extra green, leave something out. Make a provision for them, even if they don't know they're doing it. What, what might that look like in this space? Let's just talk about that in this space. That would be something like, hey, can I help you find a connect group? Service is over. Everybody gets up and talks with their friends. And the strangers kind of look around. You ever been in that one? You ever been in that space? You ever been in that experience? Yeah, the formal greeter greeted you. But now you're on your own. 
No idea where to go. No idea where the bathroom is. What if they got kids? Show them where to take their kids. Somebody make sure they're invited to lunch. Get an umbrella and help them to their car if it's raining. It's not rocket science, is it? These are just things we could do on a Sabbath morning. I, I took a few minutes this week, and I was just sitting out there in the middle, and I noticed something I hadn't noticed before. On the backs of some of these pews, a little closer to the front, is an old box. You see those boxes? If you're far enough back, you can see them. You, you can't if you're too close to the front. But what they are is, is old hookup places for hearing impaired. That's a way that this church used to say to people who came here who were hearing impaired, we want you here. Because can you imagine anything more frustrating than sitting in church and you can't hear a thing? That would be horrible. Now, I don't know what we do anymore, and I don't, I don't, anyway, I don't know where that's at now, but I'm pretty sure those things don't work anymore. But it is an indication of what was done at a time. Handicap access is a way we say we want you here or inadvertently communicate we don't. Verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over and she had eaten after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. got to take responsibility for each other. We got to care about people in need. We got to show that we care about it. Because you know what happens when we do that? Jesus Jesus makes a comment in the middle of the sermon on the mount. He says He said, "Well, let me look it up here. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. Matthew 5 verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see how Naomi did this? Boaz did a good deed, and she said, praise God for him. Wouldn't that be awesome? If, if when somebody visited here afterward, the, the, the words on their lips was, praise God for Boulder Church. May God bless them. Wouldn't that be amazing if every visitor that ever came here, after they left, all they could say is, man, God bless that place. Wouldn't you love to have visitors praying for us? That'd be amazing. It even goes on in 1 Peter. It says, uh, even before pagans who, who might not think much of you, be so good and righteous that on the day of the Lord they can say nothing but, huh, well, the Lord be praised. They were right. That would be neat. 
So Boaz, the man who had everything, showed kindness to a woman who had nothing. And the result was, bless, was the blessing that Boaz would get to become one of the ancestors of David and later of Jesus himself. We never know how far hospitality and kindness and blessing will go. But I want to do one more story. And this is a New Testament story. And the story is, is about Cornelius. But in truth, it starts with Peter. And I'm not being unkind when I say, in fact, it starts with Peter's prejudice. We all have prejudice. And if we think we don't, it's only because we're blind to it and we haven't been confronted on it yet. Prejudice, and understand what I mean by this word. Prejudice is the product of information given coupled with life experience or inexperience. So, so how do we live our lives? We get this input of information and then we have this series of experiences and then we make judgments and assumptions about how reality works and that becomes the pattern by which we live our life. But the problem is our information is never flawless and our experience is never fully understood. And the net result is we sometimes end up with prejudice that is not well-founded. To have a prejudice is normal. Small children are almost always safest when they're prejudiced against people who aren't their parents. Can we agree on that? Wouldn't it be better that kids... I, I see it when I go around to greet the different kids. They're with their parents and they're comfortable, but this weird guy comes up and asks for a high five, and they're like, I don't know about him. That's a good thing. We need to earn trust. But the problem with prejudice comes when we hang on to it when it's shown to be invalid, when we refuse to learn and grow. Nothing says you're not welcome faster than prejudice. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Why does this story happen? Well, you see, the Lord had a conundrum. He had a little problem he needed to solve. He had told the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And they're like, yes, we will go to Jerusalem and talk to the Jews. And we will go to Judea and talk to the Jews. And maybe we'll even talk to the Samaritans. And we'll go to the end of the earth and talk to the Jews. And this will be amazing. Yes, Lord. We're on mission. So far, they talked to the Jews. They talked to the pseudo-Jews. 
the Samaritans. They were circumcised, at least. But how can God get his followers to agree to let Gentiles into the church? We forget what a big deal this was. Because <laughs> we're Gentiles, right? We forget that this was a huge deal. And in order to get this done, it started with a vision because there was prejudice. Verse 9, about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped by the gate. First of all, God has amazing timing, doesn't he? Three in the afternoon, he gives Cornelius the vision. He tells the guys to go, knowing that they'll, let's see, they'll need to spend the night. They'll get up the next morning. They'll have this delay along the way. They'll find it. They'll arrive right now. Okay, let's give Peter the vision now. It all happens. God can make these things happen. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, verse 17, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon was known. Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down, said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for, why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now the interesting thing about this is realize this is an encounter Peter would never have engaged without the assurance of the Spirit. Because there was some prejudice there. Or maybe that's not the word to use because it's become ugly. There was some discernment there. Or maybe better, caution. It was important for Peter not to run off with the Romans if he wanted to stay alive. Right? There was a reason. So hospitality. Peter says, come on in. Hospitality is a true gift of the Spirit. Verse 23, the last part, the next day Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence interesting Cornelius went way out of his way to make Peter feel welcome knowing full well that the invitation was a hard one for Peter to accept there's a lesson here for us we need to make it easy for people we invite into our community to say yes because it's already awkward for them 
just like Peter could have gotten there. And if Cornelius hadn't had everything the way he had it, just so, just ready for him, he might have said, yeah, I don't know. This doesn't seem safe. Hospitality is as much a gift of the Spirit as evangelism or teaching. And some of you have it. And we need you to use it. Hospitality takes different forms. One form is called a hospitality team. That's a group of people that get together and work together to make sure we do these things so that people like me that are not great at hospitality don't do dumb stuff. So that we know how to greet and welcome people. It also happens on your own. So on the one hand, this visit of Peter is that the people might learn about Jesus, but, but it's also for Peter to learn about the kingdom of God. Here's the thing. Whenever you're doing a good work, don't be so sure that it's about what you're doing for them. God may be doing something for you through that that matters even more. Never be sure you know everything there is to know about God, what God wants, and what his kingdom should look like. Here's, here's the thing. Be careful not to confuse what you like with what God wants. See, that's how we communicate you're not welcome faster than anything else. When we have decided what we like is what God wants. All right, let's finish this. Verse 25. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him stand up. Stand up, he said, I'm only a man. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? That's an interesting thing to say when you first go in. You know I'm not supposed to be here. But here we go. God said. Cornelius then repeats the story of how it all came to be. And it ends with this amazing statement that ought to be our attitude anytime we go to worship. Verse 33. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. That ought to be our spirit when we gather in worship. Verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea. He goes on and on and talks about Jesus and all he did. Verse 39, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He preaches the gospel to him. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God has already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. So he gives the basic gospel presentation. But then it happened. And it happened in a manner that was unprecedented to that time. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Now, here's what's amazing about this. Always before, the Holy Spirit fell after baptism. 
They put their faith in Jesus. They believed the message. They were baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And with the Samaritans, it didn't even happen until Peter showed up later, even after they were baptized. But with the Gentiles, God knew he could not wait for his people because they were not willing to baptize the uncircumcised. So the Holy Spirit had to take the lead. God had to step in and show Peter, yes, even the uncircumcised Gentiles are wanted and welcome just as they are. Now this point would not fully be decided on until chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. It was hard to believe God wanted the uncircumcised Gentiles. See, this is how the people of God are. We get inside and we make our rules and we get comfortable with who we are and then we're pretty sure God wants what we like. And it's really hard to make someone who does not fit our mold feel welcome. And sometimes the Holy Spirit has to take the lead. Verse 45, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit, maybe even appalled some of them, that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. All right. Peter took heat for this. The next chapter talks about it. What are you doing baptizing Gentiles? Let's get back to the core question. Do you want me here? Well, frankly, no. The Jews didn't want the Gentiles here, but God did. And it took a long time for the church to figure out what it meant for both Jews and Gentiles to be a part of this. Now, there's much more we could say, and we'll say more next Sabbath, but we need to close but maybe before we get to the issue of causing others to feel wanted, maybe where we need to end today is that Jesus doesn't just want others in his kingdom. He wants you in his kingdom. Maybe the first ones that need to ask the question, do you want me here, is us. And maybe the person we need to ask that question of is not each other, it's Jesus himself. So we're going to do that. We're going to take a second here. And I'm going to be quiet. And you're going to ask Jesus, do you want me here? Do you want me in your kingdom and do you want me in this place? Those are the questions. Do you want me here, Jesus? Do you want me in your kingdom? Do you want me in this place? I'm going to be quiet. Ask Jesus that question right now. You have about 30 seconds.
what do you hear Jesus saying? We've talked about this before, that it is possible for the people of God to hear his voice. My sheep know my voice. They follow me. What do you hear him saying to you? Does it sound anything like this? John 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus wants you with him. So much so that he died on the cross, so much so that he rose again and has gone to prepare a place, not for them, for you. Jesus wants you here. And if the rest of us that Jesus also wants have sometimes not shown you that very well, I'm sorry. Both to you and to Jesus, who we represent. I'm sorry. We haven't communicated that well. The deep truth is Jesus wants you to be a part of his kingdom. And I want to go on and say, if there's any way we can make that happen here, we want you here too. So don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Jesus has prepared a place for you. You're welcome in his kingdom. He wants you here. I think in order to show people we want them, we're going to need to, sh to know that we are wanted. So let's settle this today. You listened to the voice of Jesus. What did he tell you? Does he want you here? You heard his words in scripture. What does it tell you? Does he want you? Let's settle this today. From now on, know that you are wanted by Jesus. He wants you to be a part of this. Even though in our hearts, we're prone to wander, we're prone to stray. Yet his goodness, like a fetter, will hold us if we trust him. He wants you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we believe that Jesus wants us. And we have come in faithfulness to his call. Bind us closely, Lord, to thee. In Jesus' name, amen.